This is the Education Gadfly Show. If we had Alexa in every single uh, classroom in America, uh, she could eventually be offering suggestions for how to improve. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. Now, please join me in welcoming my special guest for this week, Nina Reese. Nina, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Nina. Nina is the president and CEO of the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools. Also joining us, as always, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Hello, hello. Well, Nina, David, it is great to have you with me. Although, amazing, we are doing this virtually. This time, I am calling into the show because I am home with a bad cold and trying to be a good role model of not being sick and spreading my germs uh, on the the metro and in the D.C. uh, Fordham office, especially while everybody is freaked out of pandemics. Uh, But we are not here to talk about coronavirus. We are going to talk about the federal budget instead. Let's do it on Ed Reform Update. So, Nina, unfortunately, we're here for not so good news. Uh, a, a few weeks ago, the president came out with his proposed budget for the next fiscal year, and there was a big surprise. Uh, rather than proposing more money for the federal charter schools program, like he's done several years in a row, he proposed to put it into a big block grant to shrink that block grant uh, overall and to send it back to the states. Uh, what, what do you say to this idea? Well, as you noted, this is not such a great idea. And your piece in the Gadfly actually captures the five reasons why block grants are a bad idea, especially when it comes to this particular program. Um, Overall, though, as you and I both know, the history of passing these large block grants out of Congress is pretty much non-existent to the extent things have been block granted in the past. Uh, the overall amount of funding reaching states has been reduced. And because the money gets diluted, chances are that the ultimate goal that members of Congress had in mind when they enacted the legislation that they're advocating for is not going to be realized. So overall, it's a bad idea. But as you noted, this program is different from the other programs they put in the block grant, Mike. Uh, Unlike the other programs, which usually support recurring operation costs for whatever it is that they're supporting, this one is just intended to give that newcomer, new school leader, oftentimes a teacher, uh, a little bit of funding at the beginning of the school year in order to make sure they can pay themselves, that they can do a strategic plan, that they can buy a desk and some chairs and a school bus until there are enough seats filled in that school for them to be able to run and operate the school fully. So it's simply designed to do that. And in that sense, it's one of the most cost-effective programs at the federal level and one that has generated huge return on investment because of the outcomes that charter schools are yielding at the state level. All right. Now, you and Jim Blue, who's one of the assistant secretaries over there at the Department of Education and has been a longtime friend of charter schools before going into the administration, you and he have been in a a little bit of a tit for tat via the media. He has been making the case that, hey, you know, this could actually result in more money for charter schools because states will have the flexibility to spend the block grant uh, almost on anything they want. They could certainly use it to spend it on startup grants for charter schools if they wanted to. Uh, You know, you and, and frankly, myself and others have said, well, no, this is more like just zeroing out this federal program, and it's unlikely states are going to pick up the ball. Why, why is that? Why don't you see, if this were to get through Congress, why do you see this resulting in just less charter schools? That's a great question. And maybe you should have invited Jim to be on the podcast, Mike, <laughs> so he could have answered the question. Let me just give you one example. Last year, the department gave a developer grant to the Puerto Rico Boys and Girls Club. This was startup money for them to launch their school. Had that money 
gone to the SCA in Puerto Rico, chances are it would not have reached this local community-based organization, which is really the only charter school in Puerto Rico since that law was enacted. The vice president's uh, own state of Indiana is another example, a state that, according to our model law, is the number one ranked state in the nation when it comes to the quality of its law. But the state education agency is not a huge fan. So if you are going to empower them with the authority to disseminate the money, chances are the person overseeing the block grant is going to have other priorities other than expanding and renewing high quality charter schools. So those are just a couple of examples. If you're in a state like Florida or Texas, where the superintendent is on your side, you will be able to continue supporting these programs. And hopefully the block grant will mean more money going to charter school startups. But if you're in a state where the governor or the superintendent are not on your side or are agnostic about charter schools, then this program is going to fall by the wayside. So this is really, as Checker noted in his piece about this issue, about what the administration's priority is. If they want to be the administration that supports school choice, you want to keep a little bit of authority at the national level to push for national plot priorities. And this is a very small investment and in something that, again, generates a huge return. Well, the way this block grant is proposed, most of the money would end up at the local level, right? I mean, it would follow the Title I formula. Most of that gets all the way down into school districts. So there's not even that much money for states, I think, to play with if they wanted to use it for startup funds for charters. And of course, districts aren't going to use this, by and large, for, for new charter schools. Let's step back a little bit and try to understand what the heck is going on over there. I mean, this is an administration that has been all about school choice when it comes to the K-12 issue. That is, Some of us have criticized them for only having this one policy, school choice, school choice, school choice, but that has certainly included public charter schools and all of a sudden they do this. At the same time, they're promoting a $5 billion tax credit that would probably largely go to private schools. So David, for somebody like you, more on the left, who uh, perhaps likes charters more hey, than private hey, school hey. choice. Uh, no, I'm not saying anything bad about that. Some people on the left have said, see, this is just evidence that this administration, they really don't care about any public schools, including public charter schools. They just want private school choice. Is that your take? I don't know that it matters what my take is, Mike. I will not pretend to know the mind of the secretary or anyone else. I think if that is their thinking, that is dangerously misguided because the way I see it, the school choice movement has succeeded in many ways because of what I would describe as a tacit truce between fans of private school choice who have some priorities and beliefs and fans of public school choice who have other priorities and beliefs. And in a sense, the fact that we have charters and vouchers allows everybody to sort of play in their own sandbox and pursue reform as they sort of see it, right? Their ideal version of reform. And I think it would be a mistake to sacrifice either of those, for starters, but also blurring the distinction even, I think has real political risks because I think there are many reform-minded Democrats like myself who are sort of unambiguously for charter schools and potentially for or against vouchers. Um, but it's a more complicated discussion for many people. And I just think it would be a mistake to underestimate the degree to which that has held together the school choice coalition. Now, that's well said, David. You know, what do you think is going on over here? I mean, some of us have guessed that maybe uh, Secretary DeVos and her team just lost some kind of battle with the White House, kind of like they did a few years ago over Special Olympics funding. Is that what this is? Because otherwise it doesn't seem to make any sense. It doesn't, but should also remind your Listeners, that this is an election year, the notion of block granting, sending more power and authority back to states is 
tends to be one of those issues that mobilizes the conservative base. If you look back at the Reagan years, this was something that he had proposed. And this president has used a lot of the rhetoric of President Reagan when he's on the campaign trail. So it could have very well been just the page out of that playbook that they're using process. They kind of threw us in the mix with everything else that they usually don't support. I mean, what's also unfortunate is they did save a few programs. I mean, the vocational educational career or technical education not only was saved from being thrown in the block grant, but they also increased the appropriation for that program. But let's just also remind ourselves that this budget is not likely to pass. So a lot of this is activity that those of us who are close to the action like to follow. But at the end of the day, you need an act of Congress to enact this big block grant. And not only do they not have the votes, they don't even have a bill. So the odds of the budget moving anywhere are very slim. Okay, well, that in this case is probably a good thing. We will leave it there. Nina Reese, again, president and CEO of the National Alliance of Public Charter Schools. Thanks, as always, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. Amber's there in the studio. I'm calling from home. Everything's upside down. I don't know what's happening. It is. We're having a good time, though. We're just all using a lot of hand sanitizer around here. You oh, know, that's, my goodness. That's the deal. Well, we're uh, talking yeah. a big game, at least. Yes. Uh, <laughs> have you been seeing people in D.C. walking around with masks yet? I actually did see a couple of them this morning. I did on the Metro. It's DC, Mike. There's always a few people in masks uh, if you walk (laughs) in front of the White House. This this is true. And of course, you know, I see people in masks and I think, oh, well, they must have it. That's, uh, you know, (laughs) the evidence is that it only helps if you have it to keep other people from getting it. Oh, man, who knows? We probably shouldn't joke about this. That's right. We're here talking about education research. What you got for us, Amber? We got a new study in Ed, Finance and Policy, that journal that I really enjoy, uh, examines the impact of teachers teaching multiple sections of the same course on various student outcomes. I was just completely enamored with this topic. I normally never do studies outside of the U.S., but this one is apparently only the second study ever to look at this topic, and so I was intrigued. It takes place at a Dutch university business school. It offers programs not only in business, but the related fields of economics and finance. That's kind of all we're told about this place where the study is conducted. It covers the years 2009-10 through 2014-15. Analysts observe 731 different instructors who vary in seniority from postdocs to full professors. And each instructor teaches on average about 2.5 sections per course. The sample includes about 7,300 sections. Of those, 42% are an instructor's first section for a given course. 33, 19, and 8% are an instructor's second, third, and fourth sections, respectively. Okay, and that's the variation they use to exploit the estimate of the impact of teaching repetition. Okay. So high school, David taught for a while, I did too. You normally, as a high school teacher, for instance, teach multiple sections of the same course. So it's not, it's not taking place in the K-12 sector, but in the university setting. But I think applicable to the K-12 scenario. All that said, they look at four outcomes, a student's grade, where they dropped out of the course, students' evaluations of the instructor, and students' self-reported hours per week that they studied for the course. Okay, those are the four outcomes. Students are randomly assigned to sections within a course conditional on scheduling conflicts, which arise for about 5% of student course registrations that are then manually fixed. Because the type of instructor and the course subject are likely to impact outcomes, Their study compares student outcomes within instructor course combinations 
with the main analysis essentially relying on comparisons between students in an instructor's later course sections of a course to their peers in the first section that have the same course plan, which I think basically means they also control for the times of the day that the student took the course, Mm -hmm. since prior studies have shown that kids who they perform worse earlier in the day. Really? Headline. They find little to no impact on all these various outcomes. So when they're looking at student grades, the, the estimates for an instructor's first section relative to their third or fourth section is statistically insignificant. Hmm. There are small and insignificant effects as well on teaching repetition for the probability of dropping out of the course. Likewise, there's little evidence that teaching repetition leads to better teaching evaluations, nor are there significant differences in self-reported study time related to teaching repetition. Then they look at impacts by prior teaching experience, and they also find just very tiny differences, such that an inexperienced instructor is not benefiting from teaching this course multiple times compared to his or her more experienced colleagues. Finally, I thought this was kind of funny. They decide to examine whether having a same-day break in between teaching these multiple sections changed the pattern of effects that they'd been observing in the study. And they find that, um, again, no meaningful differences. So even if you get a little bit of downtime in the day that you might, you know, potentially make improvements, apparently that's not happening. Then they have a nice discussion section. They end up saying teaching multiple sections of a course neither helps nor hurts teaching effectiveness. Instructors don't appear to use their first section as a trial run for like trying to get better for the later sections. And the kids aren't at a disadvantage if they take the, the section earlier in the day versus later in the day. They say that if the idea is that teachers get better as a, as, you know, as a result of teaching the same course multiple times and they clearly need more time mm-hmm. to reflect than a short break in the day. Right. Um, and then the last thing, which I thought was a relevant point, was, was they actually did some observations and collect some descriptive data on the courses. And these were mainly courses where the instructor served as a facilitator and the kids were in groups most of the time and the instructor was kind of wa- walking around and answering questions. And so they hypothesized that maybe you might see a difference in classes that were operating under a different format. Interesting. Amber and David, when you were teaching in high school, did, you know, I know this was in college, but in high school, did you end up repeating the oh, same yeah. course multiple times? I, yeah. Yes. I mean, thank goodness. Right? Yeah, two preps was ideal, I thought, back in the day. I had six periods as a high school teacher. So if you had three sections of one course and then two of the other and then your planning period, that was always my ideal schedule because one prep would bore you out of your mind. Three was too many, but two seemed about right if we're talking Goldilocks. And six is literally impossible. Yes. I mean, three is basically the limit. Yeah. When possible, then it should come down to what teacher preference, which you know probably most teachers have similar preference to what you're talking about here. Two preps, maybe three, certainly not more than that. But I mean, I like the theory. I just, yeah, it's odd that it didn't kind of work out that way, right? Like, I'm just thinking anecdotally about about when I was teaching. I felt like I I probably didn't change my lesson as much if I had. I I mean, I remember often having first period and then sixth period was the same prep. Um, And I I, I don't think I made significant changes uh, as a result. Um, I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, honestly. Well, so how many... How many classes a day were these Dutch business professors I know, teaching? Right. Uh, average two and a half. Oh, that's a lot for a Dutch yeah. business professor. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess my theory, or well, the reason I ask is, so as you were talking, I, I was initially surprised, but then as you were talking, it did make more sense to me because like you, I sort of tried to correct course mm-hmm. between second period and fifth period, right? right? But, you know, you have different kids. Mm-hmm. The kids are in a different mood. It goes slightly differently. 
you're in a different mood. I mean, it's just, right. uh, it, it's, it's, it's hard. It became more intuitive to me as you were talking that, you know, improvement may happen from semester one to semester two. two right. Right. As but opposed not from to the morning to the afternoon. Yeah. And, and to yeah. be totally honest, right. If you don't have a prep in between, like, I don't know, it takes a really motivated teacher to sprint to the copier and, you know, revise the sentence somehow, <laughs> right. right. To clear up that minor misunderstanding Right. All which is to say, right. uh, the, I think to me, the, the, the more important channel might be how many preps there are, right? Yeah. In other words, if there are three preps, I, I was on three preps initially and then mm-hmm. gladly, thankfully, was t- taken back to two, right? right? When I basically said, I'm going to yeah, die. That's really hard. Uh, that was in- incredibly helpful just in terms of making each of those mm-hmm. preps better, but right. it wasn't improvement during the day. But you know, Mike, I'm also thinking about Robert's book where he, you know, talked about success for all, where literally they were making instantaneous tweaks and improvements during the same lesson almost, you know, where where he would he would talk about having sort of this team leadership team observing, sort of like, okay, let's have a little conversation out in the hallway and, you know, just trying to kind of get these real-time improvements and instructional time, which takes a lot of effort from leadership and teachers. But apparently these changes can be made, but uh, it's not going to be made in your typical uh, district, I don't think. Yeah. No, you mean the uh, Success Academy? Yeah. No. And of course, that came with some external feedback. So it would be a lot to expect a teacher to be able to sort of notice their own uh, ways that they might get it better in real time and make those changes. Although I'm hopeful, you know, my big idea, if if we had Alexa in every single uh, classroom in America... She could eventually be offering suggestions for how to improve the teaching uh, going on, you know, so. Right. Or, you know, good suggestions for music to play. (laughs) Yes. I I don't know why I'm so optimistic about the whole robot thing, uh, given especially I've been watching The Matrix with one of my sons. uh, But but still, uh, you know, I got to believe. All right. Hey, that is uh, interesting stuff, Amber. Even though, uh, you know, I like it that we featured a study that did not have significant impacts, but was interesting nonetheless. I know. And and it got published. So, you know, that's important too. Very noble of you, Mike. <laughs> yes. Good. All right. Well, speaking of noble, uh, let, let's uh, be noble and, and give back some time to our listeners. That is all the time we've got for this week. Until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.